Dominus Vobiscum Amigos, and welcome to another episode of the Heavenly Toast Podcast. Thank you for joining me here again. Today's going to be a little bit different, actually. This is going to be one of our first book reviews. This is something that I hope to do a lot more of in the future, uh, mostly because spiritual reading was something that was so instrumental to me when I was really developing and learning about the faith and really coming to a deeper grasp of things. And I really think that spiritual reading is one of the greatest graces that we have. We can read the works of other theologians and other saints and other people who have gone before us and sort of view things through their eyes, view the fruits of their prayer, the fruits of their study, and really uh, contemplate things that others have thought before us and place things into a larger historical context. In this first episode, I think it's a great way to start off. Uh, perfectly, uh, just a little bit too late for Advent, unfortunately, so perfect timing. But uh, what we're going to be reviewing today is Jesus of Nazareth, The Infancy Narratives. This is a book by Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, that he released uh, actually not too long ago. It was part of a three-part series that he produced collectively called Jesus of Nazareth. So the first book was Jesus of Nazareth, and basically focused on the public ministry of Jesus. So basically everything from the beginning of the public ministry up until kind of like the Holy Week entry into Jerusalem sort of time period. The second book was uh, all about Holy Week, the Triduum, the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, talked a lot about the Passion, a lot about those things. And this book is The Infancy Narratives. It's a little bit shorter than the other two, and it focuses specifically on what we know about the beginning portions of Jesus's life. So, the description that Pope Benedict XVI gives of what he's trying to do with these books, I've always thought is really interesting. On the back of the paperback edition of the first Jesus of Nazareth book that I have, it has a quote from him saying that this book is his personal search for the face of Jesus. And I really think that that shines through in all three of these books. In it, you can really see the Pope who is, I mean, of undeniable intelligence. He's somebody who is extremely well-read, someone who's obviously spent a lot of time praying and meditating and reading and studying and pondering over the course of his life and trying to kind of discover things and fit things together on who is Jesus. And he's really taking on a lot of the so-called historical Jesus movements in a lot of modern exegesis. And basically what that is, is, look, let's take a look at the actual texts and the actual first person, second person, secondary sources and everything, and take a look at who the historical person of Jesus is. Is he who's presented in the Gospels, or is he some other person that, you know, the Gospels kind of mythologized, or they uh, embellished a lot of the things about him? And this is kind of what Pope Benedict is taking on, looking for this real person of Jesus who truly existed in the past, and trying to discover who he was, what kind of a person he was in his humanity, and what kind of... Uh, what we can learn about him from all of the things that are at our disposal. 
There's a quote, I think it was by Peter Kreeft, I'm not quite sure, but what he said was, true theology is theology that's done on one's knees. Meaning that true theology is the fruit of prayer. And I really think that that shines through in this entire trilogy. I think that it's very clear that this is not book knowledge on the part of Pope Benedict's uh, part. It's very steeped in meditation and in prayer and in really trying to think about the pieces and understand who this often mysterious person, often um, difficult to fully come to true comprehension of, of Jesus is. Who is he? And it's very clear throughout this writing that this is truly the fruit of prayer and the fruit of meditation. It's not simply an A to B sort of a thing. It's not simply logic and study, but it's very, very heavily influenced by meditation and contemplation on not only what other people have studied and written about, but also the Pope's own reflections and meditations as well. He highlights different pieces of uh, the different evangelists' stories and how they come together. And he paints a picture of Jesus, of who he is, and the fulfillment of Israel's promises. It's not simply a book about Jesus, but places him in a larger context of what this meant for the time, for the people of Israel. And it even drives into the present to what this means for we as the church now. Jesus wasn't simply some person who existed 2,000 years ago. If we truly believe what the church teaches, we believe that he is God. And the actions, the identity, and the pieces that we put together about Jesus don't only simply affect things all those years ago, but it in fact stretches all the way through the centuries and affects us intimately here and now in the present situations of our lives, in the present situation of the church, and in every situation that we find ourselves in. So let's talk a little bit about the good and the bad about this book. I read the first Jesus of Nazareth book, uh, man, probably junior year of college, maybe senior year, I don't remember exactly when, but I remember it basically blew me out of my socks. I mean, it was really unbelievable to read what the Pope had written about this central part of Jesus' life from the beginning of his public ministry to the entry in Jerusalem before his passion. And I remember reading just page after page of these meditations and explanations and kind of puzzlings of all of these things that Jesus did and said. And I can't help but feel like that first book in the trilogy still sets the bar. This book doesn't seem, like, rushed or slouchy by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, comparing it to that first book in the trilogy, I really think that that's the best, honestly. And I'll review the other two uh, here as we go, but it seemed fitting right as I wrapped up this book at the end of Advent to do that while it was still fresh in my mind at this point. So... It does seem to be, this book, The Infancy Narratives, seems to be a little bit more historical rather than spiritual 
because the first Jesus of Nazareth was very, very spiritual in nature. It was very unpacking the meaning of the Our Father, unpacking the meaning of the Beatitudes and what this would have meant for the Israelites and everything. It was very spiritual and applicable to the spiritual life even today. And I felt like this book still certainly was, and there's still certainly plenty of meat in there, but not as much as that first book. I will say this about Benedict XVI, too. He has the ability to be intelligent and profound and still easy to read. That's a trait that's not very common among a lot of uh, writers, uh, either today or in the past. I mean, that's just a very difficult thing to do. He's not overly verbose. He's very direct and to the point, but he still packs a tremendous punch, and he's still very, very intelligent in how he writes and in what he says. The book is very well researched. He cites so many other authors, it's not even funny. And he, more than just citing the authors, really appears to understand what it is that they're saying. And he agrees with other authors and other speakers, and he disagrees with them as well, and points out his own counter-arguments to things. So it's not simply you know, this big, long, work-cited page because the professor said that he had to have, you know, 12 sources or whatever. It's really taking these other authors and really synthesizing what they had to say and bringing it in so that he really can create a more fully fleshed-out um, image and a more fully fleshed-out idea of what it is that he's meditating on and thinking about. It's not too long of a read as well, which is a great thing, especially for Advent, being a shorter of the liturgical seasons. And it's not too difficult of a read either, despite the fact that Benedict XVI writes very well and he writes at a very high level. It's not very hard to read. I will tell you this, though, it may not be the fastest read that you've ever done. There will be a lot of times where you'll put the book down and kind of think about what you've read. You might, you know, read two or three paragraphs and have to set it aside and kind of chew on things for a little while. It is very deep and very profound. But it is a great prep during Advent, and I was really happy that I had the opportunity to read it during this past Advent season. So let's talk a little bit about the key takeaways from this uh, book here. I want to just kind of run through this a little bit and maybe cite some quotes and everything. I really appreciated his section on the genealogies, and even especially just how he talked about all of the gospel passages. He really made a good point of saying that the gospels weren't really supposed to be and aren't play-by-play, blow-by-blow accounts of Jesus' life, but rather each of the evangelists has a vantage point and an audience that they're trying to reach. So even when they explain certain elements of Jesus' life and recount certain events, there are subtle differences in all of the accounts. And it's not necessarily because they are supposed to be blow-by-blow -blow accounts and therefore they can't be true because they recorded things, you know, things that maybe were slightly off from one another. But rather, each evangelist was trying to highlight certain points of who Jesus was. Jesus was a divine person. So no evangelist would ever be able to fully encapsulate 
who Jesus was and what it was that he was actually doing. Instead, each one brings particular parts into focus. Each one, each evangelist uses their own sort of lens to shine a light on particular aspects of who this person of Jesus was for the benefit of the audience that they were writing to and for our benefit as well. It's not simply to explain how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the promises that God made to Israel. It was actually his redemption of the human race and who he was as a divine person. And we get all of those through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in each of their own separate ways. In particular, uh, the discussion that kind of leads things off is the discussion about the genealogy of Jesus. It's the first piece in Matthew, it's one of the early pieces in Luke, and we even catch a different sort of a glimpse of a genealogy at the beginning of the Gospel of St. John. So, what the Pope focuses on here is he says, in Matthew's genealogy, it leads the Gospel and it acts as almost like a header of things. It focuses on Abraham and on David. Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. So focusing more on Abraham and David and how the promise passed through Abraham, through David, and is now fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ makes a lot of sense when you're writing to a predominantly Jewish author. It makes a lot of sense to frame the entire gospel and Jesus' life in that sort of context to really bring out the elements that Jesus is priest, prophet, and king, and that he is the fulfillment of all of these promises to make a great nation, to make a great family, to make a great people. Luke's genealogy is a little bit different, though. Luke begins all the way at Adam, and he goes through Abraham and David still, but there's a slight difference there in that he doesn't begin with Abraham as Matthew does. And the Pope points out that there's a different audience for Luke than there is for Matthew. And I'll put in a direct quote here from the book. Um, he's talking about how St. Luke is discussing and writing to uh, a more diverse audience than St. Matthew was. There were a lot of uh, pagans, a lot of Greeks, that might have been reading Luke's gospel. He says, Luke's genealogy is correctly grasped here. In underscoring, this is my parenthetical note here, in underscoring this notion of going all the way back to Adam, the Pope says, quote, Jesus takes upon himself the whole of humanity, the whole history of man and he gives it a decisive reorientation towards a new manner of human existence, end quote. So this is the proper way, the Pope says, to understand the differences in those two genealogies. In going all the way back to Adam, Luke is speaking about not only simply the promises fulfilled to Israel, but the reorientation and the salvation of all the human race all the way down the ages, all the way through, up to Jesus, in whom the human race finds redemption and salvation. Now, the St. John's genealogy is a little bit different. And what I'm talking about here when I reference St. John's genealogy is John chapter 1, verse 1 and onwards. 
And that's the passage that begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is not a genealogy in the conventional sense of this person was this person's father, and this person fathered this person, and then da-da-da-da-da down the line. What this is attesting to is the divine genealogy, if you will, of Jesus. John is presenting Jesus as the only begotten Son of the Father, eternally existing with him, and being God himself. He identifies Jesus as existing since before time began, so to speak, being with the Father and being one with the Father, that there was no distinction. We get the glimpse into his divine personage. And again, as we go on down that genealogy, we hear that uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. There's a little bit of an interesting reflection on that word dwelt among us. And I'll read directly from the, uh, the book again. Quote, Jesus is, so to speak, the tent of meeting. He is the reality for which the tent and the later temple could only serve as signs. Earlier, the Pope referenced the fact that dwelt among us means pitched his tent among us, literally, in the original language. The tent of meeting was the tabernacle. It was the place where the Israelites would set up and God's presence would dwell among them. Literally and truly, it would be with them. So what St. John is pointing out in his genealogy is not only who Jesus is, but he's also pointing out the fact that in this act of the incarnation, Jesus, God himself, dwells among us again, truly, bodily, and substantially. This is one of the great takeaways in these different genealogies that we have, is that we can obtain and understand a little bit more about him through each of these gospel writers and in what differences and in what pieces they're attempting to highlight and bring into focus for us. So I really appreciate another section of this book that details the difference between the Annunciation to Mary and the announcement to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a priest of Israel, and it's come to be his turn to offer sacrifice for the temple and for the people of Israel. And he is uh, inside the Holy of Holies, something that a priest would only ever be able to do once in his lifetime. The Holy of Holies was the place where the presence of God truly dwelt. And when he goes in to offer this sacrifice, he finds the angel Gabriel, who announces the birth of John the Baptist to Elizabeth, who has been barren. There's a difference here with the Annunciation of Mary. It's a similar sort of a circumstance where Mary, a poor Israelite woman, is in prayer, and the angel Gabriel again comes to her and announces the birth of a child. There's a difference in how Mary and Zechariah respond, however. Zechariah responds with fear, and Mary reacts with a striving to understand. We often read the two and kind of think that the reactions are similar, which it's uh, understandable why we kind of become confused as to why the consequences of the action are different between the two. 
But when we read it a little bit closer, we realize that Zechariah reacts with fear and with doubt that these things can actually be accomplished. Mary, instead, asks for a question on the particulars. She realizes that she has not been with man, she knows not a man, and she's understandably confused as to how she could be with child. Whereas Zechariah says that, no, I don't think that this is truly possible. In both cases, God proves both of them incorrect. He says, this will happen, for all things are possible with God. And in that, we have the difference between the trust of Mary, who reflects on all these things in her heart, and the doubt of Zachariah, who becomes mute and is uh, not able to speak until the birth of his son. This trust of Mary, this reflecting on all these things in her heart, makes her an image of the church. She listens to what it is that God says, and far from being the arbiter or making decisions about what is and what isn't, she reflects on these things and transmits them to others. She ponders, she grows to understand the depth and the breadth of what's being told to her without attempting to manipulate or control it, without attempting to make the message something that it's not. And I really think that that was a beautiful section too. Along with Mary here, we have the figure of St. Joseph, who receives images and dreams. He receives messages from an angel while he's sleeping, who is telling him various things. You know, the people seek the child's life, take the child and the mother and flee. Um, he receives another message, take them here. And it really opens up Joseph as someone who discerns and who responds to God's will. He discerns in that he's thinking about these things, praying about these things, and attempting to ascertain where they come from, and attempts to respond to them as best that he can. So I'll read another section of uh, what the Pope says here. He says, quote, Once again, this shows us an essential quality of the figure of St. Joseph, his capacity to perceive the divine and his ability to discern. Only a man who is inwardly watchful for the divine, only someone with a real sensitivity for God and his ways, can receive God's message in this way. So, in this we really get an image of what this holy family must have been like. We have Mary, who's receiving the Annunciation from Gabriel. We have Joseph, who's being visited by an angel in the dream. And they're both discerning, reflecting in their heart, praying, attempting to understand things that are divine. They're attempting to understand what it is that God is calling them to. And I really believe that that's a, a beautiful image and something that is that can help us because we often wonder, oh, well, how could I be one of these saints? Well, the Pope is telling us that it takes an inward watchfulness to be cognizant and conscious of the movements of the divine in our souls, that they do in fact happen, that they are in fact there, that God does speak to us, but it takes prayerfulness, watchfulness. And a real desire to understand, a real striving 
to continue to work through all of the questions that we have without doubt, but with faith instead. There was another section that I'd like to highlight, and it's talking about the name that's given to Jesus by the angel. Jesus comes from Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. This is the entire mission encapsulated in one word of what God wishes to do to Israel and to his people. He wishes to save. And what, leaving the infancy narrative for a second, the Pope actually brings in the story of the paralytic, where Jesus is ministering to people in a house that's extremely crowded, and they can't get this paralytic to him to be healed, so they go up on the roof, they open up the roof and let the paralytic down. And here's what the Pope says about that. In the passage concerned, both the criticism of the scribes and the silent expectation of the onlookers is acknowledged. Jesus then demonstrates his ability to forgive sins by ordering his, the sick man to take up his pallet and walk away healed. At the same time, the priority of forgiveness of sins as the foundation of all true healing is clearly maintained. Man is a relational being, and if his first fundamental relationship is disturbed, his relationship with God, then nothing else can truly be in order. I really think that this, at least when I was reading it, helped to put things in perspective of what this Christmas story, what this incarnation of God is, what Jesus' mission is. The mission and the healing of people isn't so much to point to the physical healing of the body, but the healing of relationship. By the first sin, the relationship with God in humanity was severed and damaged. But this incarnation of God himself to save his people is not simply one to make people materially prosperous or to make them happy in the earthly sense. It is to repair a relationship that's been broken by sin, by selfishness, by anger, by lust, by greed, what have you. But this is the mission. It's to save people. And I think in today's world, we have a tendency to focus on the bodily aspects. We have a tendency to focus on things that are immediate and obvious and close. We focus on things like bank accounts and technology and bodily health without really stopping to understand and think about and ponder relationships that we have with one another, and most importantly, relationships between us and God. That's the purpose of the healing. That's the purpose of salvation. That is what salvation is. It's to mend the relationship that was broken by sin and restore us to true sonship in God. So the response of the shepherds is another thing. After the nativity occurs, the shepherds receive the message from the angel that there will be a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and that God has come to visit his people and they will know him because he's a babe in the manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. There's a holy curiosity by these shepherds. These shepherds who were not very high-class citizens, in fact, they were kind of rough-and-tumbled people. 
their testimony was not admissible in Jewish courts, even. That's kind of, they were pretty low on the totem pole, so why announce to these people? Well, partially because the poor, the downtrodden, they are more likely to view, to listen to, and to understand the word of God, because they, one, are probably fairly bored out in the field in the middle of the night, but two, they have a greater reliance on God because they don't have anything for themselves. They aren't caught up in the egoism of the rest of the world. They aren't so finicky and particular about the way that their life has to be. They aren't concerned and consumed with temporal affairs constantly. And I think when they go to meet Mary, they go to meet the Holy Family. There's three things about their response that I think are particularly poignant for today's world. They leave in haste to go find the child Jesus. I think that that's important because there are a lot of times in today's world where spiritual things come along and we think, hey, you know, I've got time. I'm gonna, you know, I'll become a saint tomorrow. You know, I'll pray tomorrow. Oh, I don't have the time today. But instead, it's a recognition that we need to hurry, that we need to not delay until tomorrow in all of these things, that the goodness of God is so great and the desire to love us from God is so great that it demands our response and that in f f making haste to run off to God is the greatest thing that a human being can do. So it's to move quickly and to strive ardently for holiness. The second thing that the shepherds do is that they make known the message. This is what was said, that they make known the message to the Holy Family of what they had heard from the angel, that they would find the king of Israel wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in the manger, and that there would be peace on earth and goodwill and towards man. They make known the message. I think that this is crucial for us in our day and age, too. To make known the message of God, not to be, you know, necessarily banging the war drum on the corners of streets, but to really show other people how wonderful life that we have found in Christ is. To show that the graces that God has bestowed on us are fantastic, and that the life that we live certainly has its sorrows but it is filled with wonderful joy. It's to make known the message. And finally, they leave with joy. I think that that's something crucial today too, because there are so often times where I think a lot of people go to mass, I know I certainly do sometimes, and you know it's just another thing that we're doing. We go to mass and we leave really no different than when we started in the first place. You know, it's basically, oh, hey, great, I did this thing. Perfect. Now, you know, I can check that box off so I don't go to hell. I think when we really stop and think about it, though, the shepherds leave with joy precisely because of what they found there. And at the Mass, we are guaranteed to find Jesus. He humbles himself by transubstantiating himself into bread and then offering his very self to us in Holy Communion. I think 
a lot of times, because the Mass is now commonly celebrated in the vernacular, we think that because we understand the words in Mass, we understand what's going on at Mass. But we really don't. If we sit back and think about it, this is a wondrous, marvelous exchange that we are seeing take place. We are seeing a ripple, if you will, of the Incarnation. We are seeing Jesus himself offering himself on the altar. We are seeing him through the species of the bread and wine. And we are truly looking at him and truly taking him into our being. And if we allow him in there and allow ourselves to trust and to offer ourselves to him as he offers himself to us, we will be filled with joy. We will leave with joy. And we will never be the same. Because we can't be. No human being could contain God within themselves. Instead, God must enter into us and push our heart out in myriad ways and make it larger and bigger and more capable of love. And finally, the section that I think is a key takeaway for this book is this final quote that he's talking about um, the finding of the child Jesus in the temple. So Jesus, the Holy Family, go up to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice when Jesus is about 12 years old, and the Holy Family believes that he's somewhere in the caravan. They make it a day away from Jerusalem, and they realize that Jesus isn't there. So they go back and they search for him, and on the third day they find him in the temple. And here's what the Pope writes about kind of the thought process of Jesus and what's happening in this situation. Jesus' freedom is not the freedom of, a, of the liberal. It is the freedom of the son, and thus the freedom of the truly devout person. As son, Jesus brings a new freedom, not the freedom of someone with no obligations, but the freedom of someone totally united with the Father's will, someone who helps mankind to attain the freedom of inner oneness with God. So what we see from this statement and these things that are happening here is it's not that Jesus is, you know, disrespecting his parents. It's not that he's, you know, purposely causing them fright or harm or psychological distress or anything like that. But rather what we see is Jesus as the son who is pointing us to the father. Don't you know that I must be in my father's house? He's not only revealing himself as the son, but also showing us what it is to truly be free. Despite the fact that he's given his parents quite the start, he is following the Father's will. He is learning about the Israelite faith, he is teaching people about the Israelite faith, and he is experiencing and showing this experience of inner oneness with God. We are called to join Jesus in this oneness, and we experience that through the Holy Eucharist, and we experience it through prayer. The Holy Spirit comes to our aid when we pray and brings us into that divine life. The entire piece of the incarnation here is to bring humanity into divinity, to kind of swallow up the sins and the errors of our human waywardness and repair and heal us that we might be partakers in the divine love, 
that we might be partakers in this love and oneness that Jesus shares with the Father. This is the great message of Catholic Christianity, that God became man so that man may become God. Not to become God in some weird mythological sense, but to be partakers and to participate in the divine life itself, to be one with God, that we might be truly of one mind and heart in Christ. So all that, I think those are the key takeaways of this book. It's only about 130 pages, so the fact that I spent you know this long talking to you about it really is a testament to how much uh, meat and substance there is inside of this book. I can't imagine what it'll be like when I review the first Jesus of Nazareth book. But I would really encourage you to take a look at this book. It's by Pope Benedict XVI. It's Jesus of Nazareth, The Infancy Narratives. It's available on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Pretty much every good Catholic bookstore will have it or they could get it for you. You might even be able to pick up a copy at the library and be able to borrow it from them. But I really highly recommend this book. I'd give it 8.5 stars out of 10. So please take a look. Use it for your Advent preparations next year. So cheers to Pope Benedict XVI for his many years of service to the church, for his wonderful exposition of the faith. May God bless and guide him, and may God bless and guide all of us. And uh, until next time, stay in the state of grace, and God bless, friends.